0: Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha.
1: And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're continuing our coverage of Wolfe's novella, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which was published in 1972.
0: In this episode, we'll be covering pages 37 to 50 in the 1994 Orb edition. Last time our narrator met his aunt for the first time, learned about Vale's hypothesis, about the aboriginals who may have come from St. Anne and displaced the settlers on this planet. And we learned about the end of our narrator's childhood. And this section is going to pick up with a new section in our narrator's life.
1: This next section that we're covering today is absolutely fantastic, and I can't wait to get into it. But before we get into it, we want to talk about Patreon. Now, we realize that we've got a lot of new listeners since we're doing the Fifth Head of Cerberus, and we've mentioned the Patreon, but we haven't really explained it.
0: Yeah, on our Patreon page, our supporters, who we ask a dollar a month for the basic level of... Get a lot of bonus episodes. We record about one bonus episode a month covering TV, an episode of TV we like. We've done Firefly, Glenn, and his co-host on the Star Trek Discovery podcast. We've done an episode of Buffy. Glenn and I have covered a number of great science fiction stories as well. My favorite was Snow by John Crowley, though we've done... Comment by W.E.B. Du Bois, which I think is kind of a can't-miss short story and discussion. Plus, our patrons, our supporters, can vote in our story selection polls about the wolf we cover in between novels, which is going to get more and more difficult to choose as we go on. So we look to our supporters for help.
1: Yeah, we really punted on making those decisions by forcing our patrons to, to select which of all of these amazing stories uh, we're actually going to cover on the podcast. And in addition to those basic bonuses we've got some pretty great rewards that we'll get to do as we get more supporters and we're a little more than halfway to our first goal right now at which point we'll do a bunch of extra bonus episodes bonus bonus episodes if you will but we're really hoping that we'll reach our patron goal of being able to publish episodes every week instead of every other week so if you can help us out please head over to patreon.com slash clay temple media
0: we are so grateful for the support. But now that we have that bit of business and housekeeping out of the way, Glenn, let's check in on our narrator
1: of Fifth Head of Cerberus. Yeah, we have a lot of work to do on this episode, so we, we should just get into it. Several months have passed since the last scene that we recapped, and now it is April. And it's seemingly, I think, a much nicer April than we've been having here in Philly. Now that the weather is nice, Mr. Million, David, and the narrator are going to spend the day at a park. On their way out of the house, David taps the muzzle of the the grinning head in the Cerberus statue, and when he does so, he quotes the ancient Athenian tragedian Euripides, and he says, And thence the dog with fourfold head, brought to these realms of light, This line is from the play Heracles, which takes place while the hero is in the underworld to kill Cerberus and then return to the world of the living with the monster. This is one of the the 12 labors of Hercules. The real drama of this play is actually about Heracles killing his own family in a fit of madness.
0: We're going to find so many allusions in this section that feed into this notion of madness. And it's going to come up in surprising ways. I think we're going to save a lot of it for the discussion. One thing I love about this section is that it opens with almost like Wolf's prose poem, Companion to the Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories, which begins with Winter Comes to Water as Well as Land. This section begins with Spring Surprised Me, as She Always Does, those of us who remain most of our lives indoors. And you just get this wonderful alliteration on the S's and the M's, this poetic approach to describing seasons just elevates the whole story and gives us a real sense of the character of the narrator. Though it still doesn't mean that the narrator's a good guy because he's good with language. I think as we brought up in the last episode, I think Wolf is playing a kind of game in the same way that Nabokov does in Lolita with this character. So we're going to find out if that's true or not.
1: Well, he's certainly playing a game with this line of, of Euripidean poetry here. The real significance in this scene is that David has actually modified the line, right? Fourfold is David's alteration. Euripides only gives Cerberus the three heads that she normally has. Now, the narrator points this out, and I have to say that two kids arguing about classical literature absolutely delights me. I did slow clap a little bit upon reading that that section. But David has a joke about this ready to go, and in fact, it's a pun which will surprise no one who is a reader of Wolf. He says that the fourth head is Cerberus's maiden head, which she still possesses because she is so monstrous that no one can take it from her. And uh, this joke has the narrator acknowledge that he had always thought of the three heads as representing Master, Madame, and Mr. Million, which of course is precisely the question that you asked me last episode.
0: Right, because it it really comes up in the text in a subtle way with the ant asking him his name, and he's number five. So in this section, we kind of get four heads of Cerberus, at least, which are Matra, Madame, and Mr. Million. That's confirmation of what we discussed last week. The ant in the narrator's mind at this point is the maiden head, because that's another pun. That's another play on this word. She is the matriarch of the family. And he suspects that David will be the fourth head, kind of making him the fifth head on the statue.
1: Well, there are two bits of close reading I want to do with this scene, or really just some, some close observations that I want to make before we leave it. One is that uh, Mr. Million chuckles at David's joke, and I think that we're going to spend some time in our discussion talking about Mr. Million, so I think that's worth pointing out here. The other thing is that the narrator describes David as a ruddy adolescent, and the use of the word ruddy to describe someone named David is straight out of First Samuel and the Old Testament. Not that we had any doubts that Wolf wants us thinking about King David here. It's nice that we get an allusion not just to the behaviors of David, but to the biblical text itself. That's something that really jumped out at me.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic observation. David largely disappears after this in this section as we see our narrator's health decline and his sense of David really moves in to the background. He's always thinking about his brother, but his interactions with him are almost over at this point of his life.
1: Right. When we get to the the park, the the narrator, because he is sickly, just hangs out on a bench while David is off doing other things like playing squash and badminton and, I, I don't know, other racket sports, I guess. While the narrator is there sitting on his bench, an adolescent girl and her chaperone sit on a bench nearby. The narrator is super into her. And so she's going to become a feature of the story shortly. But right now at this moment, what's interesting about her is that she has an injured leg. And so she has to sit on the bench with her leg sticking out. Now, we get this description of her, Brandon, that is, I think, really awesome. It's it's basically Wolf's pastiche of a femme fatale from a hard-boiled detective story. She has carmine lips and violet eyes. She has archly delicate black eyebrows and long curling lashes. And I know that, that Mark Armini has pointed out the incessant motif of legs in this story, which we have here as well. Uh, but I think that Wolf is doing something in addition here with this femme fatale's injured leg. And I just want to read the passage from Raymond Chandler's novel, The Big Sleep, that I think Wolf actually has in mind here. I just want to do this to show that there is yet another joke going on. So this is the description of Vivian Reagan or Vivian Sternwood, who's the femme fatale of The Big Sleep, and I think really one of the iconic characters of the genre. Chandler writes, her hair was black and wiry and parted in the middle." And she had the hot, black eyes of the portrait in the hall. She had a good mouth and a good chin. There was a sulky droop to her lips, and the lower lip was full. I think Wolfe actually does a more artful job in his description, or at least a more prosy job. But this is actually the last thing that Chandler writes about Vivian Reagan. The passage actually begins with this, and this is the thing I find really interesting. I sat down on the edge of a deep, soft chair and looked at Mrs. Reagan. She was worth a stare. She was trouble. She was stretched out with her slippers off, so I stared at her legs in the sheerest silk stockings. They seemed to be arranged to stare at. For me, this is really fun, but I think this is also meant to be a joke, because Wolf is using the trappings of this sexy, hard-boiled literature, but he's writing about 15-year-olds, and so... Rather than having these, you know, stocking clad, sexually arranged legs, he's got this awkward goofiness by making the emphasis on the legs here be an injury. And I think it's just absolutely brilliant.
0: Yeah. And that's not the only literary reference he's pulling on here. This is also straight out of. Swan's Way once again, where the narrator of that story, Marcel, at this point in the novel, unnamed, goes to the park and meets the daughter of the central family, the Swans, whose name is uh, Gilbert, and he immediately falls in love with her. In Proust, these images are connected very closely with uh, like the hawthorn plant and flowers. It's just wonderful to see, and it really comes up in the next section, Wolf pulling on so many different literary references to kind of make the world that he wants his readers to be in. And I think he relies on his readers to be really good readers of literature as well, because all of these references are really meant to be allusions and not just pastiche. There's one thing I want to point out about the girl here. You read almost all of the description of her, but Wolf here points out that she has a round rather than an oval face. And this is important because we're going to get to see, in this section in particular, an attention to detail of looks of the characters we meet, features that are with an eye to like what makes them perfect or pure. And it's, it's really fascinating. Wolf is doing something with that here, and there's a line that really explains it. The girl is also with a chaperone, I want to add. And this woman is never described as a human being. In the first moment she's mentioned, she's like a nurse or a governess, we get that. But then she's unpleasant, and she's too straight-backed to really do her job well. She is a creature, and she is an attendant monster. And so we have the sense of this beautiful girl with this monster, and there's some contrast going on there that is puzzling, because it's the only character we've met so far that really has no humanity to them. But I think Wolf is doing something here. I think we're going to understand why this woman is a monster in just a little
1: bit. Yeah, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about that, because that is something that puzzled me. The the narrator almost immediately hates this woman. And it seemed to be more extreme than the simple fact that she's kind of in the way of his ability to pursue this girl that he's immediately fallen in love with, much like in Proust. And here, much of the description on her is is really focused on her as that obstacle. And we get, actually, I think something that's, again, quite comical here, when the narrator attempts to flirt with this girl by buying her an egg roll from a street vendor. And I don't know, in Chandler, right, this would be buying her a drink. But here it's an egg roll and it has to go through the chaperone because, again, they're adolescents in the park. But there's also a detail here that jumped out at me, though I I don't know if it will be of any consequence. But Wolf makes a point of telling us that this is a society that uses paper money.
0: No, that's absolutely right. I think just saying that this is a society that uses paper money misses the point a little bit of this passage, because the narrator refers to the money first when the girl is talking to the end as gold. And we're going to see a motif in this section, and actually throughout this whole story, but it's explicit in this section due to the visitor from Earth that we meet in just a little bit, of this really superficially beautiful old world and the kind of real dusty, rotten underpinnings that support it. And we talked about this a little bit. And this is another image that works well with like kind of the beautiful girl and the monster, the real hard currency that might just be a euphemism for the money. It is a superficial or artificial description of really what's going on that covers the reality of the circumstances. And we've seen this happen before. This is actually how the narrator interacts with his whole world as a child, because it's, too ugly, like in The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories, for him to really bear the full meaning of. Something like that is happening here, though I don't know if that's a full enough explanation. I'd love to hear our listeners chime in with what is going on with this contrast of the role-playing and the imagination of the money is gold, and the explanation that the paper money is actually dirtier than the wax wrapper that Cantonese egg rolls come in. And if you get an egg roll from anywhere, that that wrapper is just trash.
1: Yeah, dirty or not, though, this scene actually makes me quite hungry. We probably should not record right around dinner time anymore. No,
0: I, yeah, I, I agree. I,
1: I really want fried food right now. Well, when they get back from the park, the narrator is summoned by his father. And uh, this is highly unusual, as he has never before met with his father, except in the small hours of the morning when the customers had all gone for the night, and his father wants to talk to him about his future. His father approves of his decision to become a scientific scholar, but the narrator makes a comment here about how it's a useless profession on a world where the industrial base is so small. He also comments about how science is no help preparing a young man for the civil service examinations or to enter a trade. I really loved these world-building details here. But the father doesn't say anything of the sort. In fact, he's proud and delighted about his son's interests. But it is true that doing science costs money. So he does want to prepare the narrator to take over the brothel so that he can use the income to fund his hobby. And with that in mind, the narrator is now going to be a sort of apprentice of the brothel. And his first job will be to master the art of greeting the customers at the door this is you know, some really thoughtful world building that Wolf does here, right? This is all evocative of the colonialism that makes Gothic literature possible, right? You can only be a reclusive mad scientist if you've made a fortune by economically oppressing others. You need a slave-run sugar plantation in the Caribbean, or on this world, you need a brothel full of sex slaves. That's the only way to be a mad scientist.
0: The father justifies this explicitly by saying science is is of great value. It's kind of the family business. But you will find as I have that it consumes more money than it produces. He's saying that in order for you to continue on doing what you love, you just have to take the role as the matra, basically. You have to take my spot. And it gives the sense that like the vice that they are engaged in as a business is really only so that something virtuous could take place. And it's a very kind of backwards approach to how progress ought to be made. Though I think that kind of is also indicative of of our whole kind of global capital culture as well, is that you have to break some eggs to make an omelet. Here, we'll just look, we're just running a brothel. We treat everyone well. I use the science, the father says, to treat all these women and our good patrons for STDs and all this other stuff. But the real family business is being a mad scientist. Another really important note here is that we learn that the narrator is the and if that was not explicit in what we were just talking about, it is explicit in this text. It makes the narrator think immediately, so I was older than David. But I think maybe he doesn't know why he's the heir. Age is probably not the reason for being an, an inheritor in this family business. Um, and we already know that they're half-brothers in some way. So it's really fascinating. Again, Wolf is demonstrating that unreliable narrator technique giving us the limited information of the narrator and playing it off as though it's the only possible circumstance for truth in the story.
1: Yeah, something that's just extraordinarily fun about this story is that the narrator is three steps behind the reader in understanding what is going on in this basement laboratory, what's going on in the house, what's going on with the biological relationships among the people in the house. And it's a lot of fun to sort of see the narrator be so clueless. This is actually kind of the opposite of how almost every other wolf story works. This might be the last time that we actually get to sort of feel smugly more knowledgeable than than the narrator.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. But I think it's also clear that the narrator is using a very specific technique in writing this memoir, not Wolf the author, the narrator as memoirist, in delivering information to us as he understood it at the time, and really withholding his full understanding from the reader as well. So it's a very complicated bit of writing Wolf is doing.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think when we do our wrap-up episode, we may talk about how true any of this really, really is. Well, let's get into the next section, which begins with the narrator taking up his duties. And we get a mention here that David is very interested in explaining the Latin etymology of the word porter for doorman. I love this because I interrupt every lecture I give to talk about the etymology of some word, but also because this is in keeping with the characterization that Wolf established way back in the library scene, right? The narrator loves science. David loves Euripides and Homer and Latin etymology. The narrator is going to get a mentor in this business of being the brothel's porter or or bouncer, if that's what you want to call it. Uh, And this is a maid named Nerissa I'll just say here that this name, Nerissa, is another multi-layered wolfish pun.
0: Yeah, our whole discussion is going to be structured around the names of characters in this story, particularly that's revealed in the sections we're discussing today. So we're going to hold off digging into Nerissa for just a few more minutes.
1: Yeah, for now, we're going to get to the the heart of the plot, really, of this section. So a few nights into his new job, the narrator greets an unusual visitor who has come looking for Dr. Aubrey Vale. And just to remind people, this is the Vale of Vale's hypothesis that the Abos are still alive, just masquerading as humans. Dr. Vale doesn't live here. So, of course, the narrator is a bit puzzled. And this gives the visitor an opportunity to tell us, the reader, the address of the brothel. And it is 666 Soltam Bank. And uh, if we'd been on the fence before about whether or not the brothel is the underworld, we certainly aren't now.
0: Yes, this is another one of the names we're going to dive into. And also, the name Aubrey Vale. We'll be talking about that. But this is April. It's still really wintry, but there's this confusion of time that's still taking place. We're told it's explicitly spring in the beginning. It's April. The narrator is going to the park, but then we get this evocation of winter again, and it just calls to mind what is happening in the narrator's memory. may not be 100% true, but that doesn't make the story untrue. It's just a wonderful detail.
1: Wolf here does, I think, some really beautiful work with describing this cusp between spring and winter and how you can have a really nice day where you can go to the park. But in fact, there is also still snow in the shady bits of your courtyard and it's cold at night. And we've been having that kind of spring here ourselves. Uh, and so it was, I think it's just really beautiful nature writing, of course, which listeners know I love. Well, I'm going to take this opportunity to jump ahead just a bit in this conversation, because we're later going to get a full address for this house. But I think I just rather would talk about that now that we've got the street number, or the house number. So here we also learned that the city of Port Mimison is located in the Department de la Maine. There is, of course, such a place in France, but uh, this name, Maine, also has a you know, connection with the French colonial settlement that is now the U.S. state of Maine. But we also learned that the planet that they are on, this sister planet of Saint Anne, is called Saint-Croix. That is, this planet is named for the holy cross upon which Christ was crucified.
0: And other things, I think, as well. And this is yet another name we're going to be talking about in our discussion.
1: Yeah, there's a lot going on here. It's really amazing. The narrator notices now the visitor's strange clothing and strange face. He remembers that a star crosser from St. Anne had splashed down in the bay yesterday. And so he asks the man if that's where he's come from. It isn't. This man is Dr. Marsh, an anthropologist who has made the long journey from Earth. But when the narrator explains about what he calls the planetary face, Dr. Marsh comments that the narrator seems to have it himself. And and this actually corrects something that I said last time, Brandon, which was that the Wolf family in this story looks different from the other colonists. Uh, That doesn't seem to be true, actually.
0: Right. That was one of the questions. That was one of the hypotheses we had was, is David more of the person who looks like he fits in with the planet? or is the narrator. And here we get from a third party, maybe an objective observer, that in fact, it is the narrator's family who looks like they fit in. That's not to say that David doesn't look like other people on the planet, but maybe it hints at that he has a bit of a darker heritage than the narrator himself does. Though I think all kind of assumptions about the parentage of David can't be good it's either a prostitute, or as we're going to find out, it's a a gypsy or a tribal person on the planet that produced David.
1: Yeah. And I'm not sure how reliable the narrator's observation about the dominant or most frequent phenotypes of the population on St. Croix actually is. I think we're going to get some other details, even in this episode, that in some ways actually contradict his assumptions about this.
0: Yeah, you're not wrong about that. There's some real crazy complications that emerge from this notion of the planetary face. And in fact, can an outside observer really make that sort of claim when the narrator gives us a detail that I think really shakes up a lot of this conversation? I do here want to read for our listeners who maybe are listening and not reading along the summary in this section about Vale's hypothesis. It's this, My aunt, on the first occasion that I had ever spoken to her, had referred to his theory, that's Dr. Vail's, that we might in fact be the natives of St. Anne, having murdered the original terrestrial colonists and displaced them so thoroughly as to forget our own past. We also get in this section more descriptions of this doctor, this person who comes to visit. His name is Marsh and we learn that he is so white that it almost constitutes a disfigurement so we learn that people on this planet are probably very dark in some way and that's even given the fact that the narrator thinks his mother is like welsh or irish or of uh, somewhere in the uk that this is like white compared to that idea of white
1: well he has just come on a spaceship from earth so it's probably been a while since he's gotten uh, any any bit of sun While they are talking about this planetary face and they are making these observations about each other's appearances, Dr. Marsh asks a question that I think really ups the ante in the story he asks the narrator if he is a clone. And and we've been anticipating this because Wolf has been leaving plenty of clues for us. But the narrator is shocked and and he even dismisses the question, saying that he doesn't think they even have the necessary technology on this planet. And we also learn here that cloning is illegal on Earth because it's considered to be anti-evolutionary.
0: Yeah, that is a question we are not going to dive into in this episode. But it is something I really encourage our listeners to get into in the forum is the question is, why would something that is anti-evolutionary be illegal? What is the ethical problem of cloning? I think we're going to touch on some of it in our discussion, but I'm not going to address this specifically. We're also going to get this sense that this narrator has no idea about the kind of technology that's available on his planet in just a moment, that many contradictions arise in this conversation as a result of our narrator's 16, 15-year-old confidence combined with his
1: ignorance. Yeah, but he's going to embrace his ignorance here. In fact, he's very interested in learning about Earth. And so he wants to keep Dr. Marsh here in the, the room. He tries to be a good, I think, even really a grown up, an adult host by having Narissa bring some coffee and, and serve them while they chat. But Dr. Marsh is in a big hurry and he doesn't want to chat with this annoying teenager. So he keeps asking to see Dr. Vale. The narrator tries to placate him by promising to see if his aunt will receive him, since she knows all about Vale's hypothesis and might actually know who Dr. Vale is and where he lives, and the narrator's plan is to hold this off for as long as possible so that he can ask questions about Earth, and I think really maybe even just talk to somebody. He seems to be kind of lonely here in this scene. But Dr. Marsh insists on sending Narissa with one of his business cards, and this does give them some time to chat, and it's also essentially the same narrative device that Wolf used with the photograph that let us learn about Vale's hypothesis in our last episode, so there's some real structuralism going on here.
0: Yeah, he's very consistent with how he delivers exposition. And he always makes it seem like it's a consequence of somebody's desire or want. I think a mistake, and just to get into craft a little bit, a mistake a lot of writers make, even a lot of best-selling published writers make, is to put exposition in a story in such a way that makes the readers want exposition to withhold information or something. So, you need a, a huge dump of exposition Wolf makes exposition a strong desire of his characters. So the reader is brought into that along with the narrator, and it's just one of the best techniques. I, You know, it, you can't learn enough from Gene Wolf, I think, as, as a reader and aspiring writer. Okay. One thing I do want to mention also that's going on here is to bring up another sense of this superficiality or artificiality versus the circumstances that sustain it. We have this brothel, we've already been told that there are rotten places in this home. But here's another example that just off the foyer where the narrator sits Dr. Marsh is a room that is just completely undusted by the maids. It's not decrepit, but it's not even paid attention to. And so we have this sense that much of what is going on on this planet through the subtle world building of the section is that there are things that everybody pays attention to and makes superficially nice, but there's much that is ignored. I think we even get that in the way that the planetary face is put in contrast with the gypsies and criminal tribes. So Wolf is just so on point here with this motif he keeps bringing back in different ways into this
1: text. And as the scene progresses, we're going to get two bits of information that have been really hidden from the narrator as well so i think that is really working here and something else just going back to your comment about the craft brandon something brilliant that wolf does here while he is giving the narrator this motive to want the exposition Wolf narratively uses this actually to subvert the reader's own expectations, right? That in fact, the exposition that we're going to get is not going to be immediately anyway to delve deeper into Vale's hypothesis, but is actually going to take us in a whole nother direction, which is absolutely brilliant. So he's really kind of having his cake and eating it too.
0: And this is something that I think he picked up from reading In Search of Lost Time, where this type of thing is all over the place. Characters are constantly placed in new light to change the meaning of the past of the narrative. And Wolf is doing that here. And it is just masterful.
1: Right. So here, we're going to learn a little bit more about Saint croix And we're also going to learn a lot about Mr. Million. Uh, Dr. Marsh wants to know why this house, the Maison Chien, seems so absurdly old, given that humans have only lived on this planet for less than 200 years. The narrator knows that the house is 140 years old and because they do not have a high population density, there's been no need to tear things down and build again. And here the narrator even says that there are fewer people on the planet than there were 50 years ago. And and this might actually suggest that atrophy that we talked about in the the previous episode.
0: Right. That If Vale's hypothesis is true, we're seeing now that evolutionary atrophy taking place, and also the need potentially for cloning. And maybe this whole text operates as a critique of the ethics of cloning, which I think maybe it does a little bit. But at least we're getting the survival need for there to be clones. If population is dwindling, and there's no or less reproduction going on, you are seeing a race of people dying out, though we don't know why.
1: Right. One thing that seems to be clear, or at least one thing that's absent in this characterization, is the arrival of any more settlers, any more colonists. We know that there were two waves of it, a French wave and an English wave, or a French-speaking and an English-speaking wave, but there doesn't seem to be any more after that.
0: Yes, and there seems to be very little danger of bastard children in the brothel as well. So here's another example of a lot of sex taking place in the foreground of this story without any reproduction. It's a really, really subtle touch, even though it is right in the forefront of the story. We just expect that people would have sex and not have children. That's a part of our culture. But in a place like this, maybe you wouldn't expect that to be the case. In a place that is evoking a time before birth control was popularly in use, where prostitutes had children kind of running around, where that was a part of the life of the court, that we're not even seeing reproduction as a result of rampant sex in this story. So maybe that speaks to the setting of this house in a brothel as well.
1: We're going to get this motif of reproduction again here when the conversation turns to Mr. Million. Uh, He just sort of comes up and Dr. Marsh calls him a 10-9 unbound simulator. This means a billion or 10 to the ninth power. And this is the number of synapses that are required to simulate the human brain in a machine. Uh, And Dr. Marsh seems interested in Mr. Million because only a few of these have ever been made.
0: And that undermines the level of technology that's on the planet. This is narrator is just taking what's there for granted without understanding its place in the broader cosmos.
1: Well, and right here, this is just a tease because at this point, Narissa comes back. She interrupts their conversation and really dashes the narrator's plan by announcing that Madame will see Dr. Marsh right now. The narrator escorts Dr. Marsh. And when his aunt answers the door, she says, I am Dr. Vale. Please come in. And we get a section break right on this game-changing revelation.
0: It's fantastic. Another name we're going to be talking about here is Dr. Vale. So I'm excited to get to that. A detail that's really important here, though, is, again, the reference to the skirt hanging emptily over the untrodden carpet. This, again, is calling attention to the fact that this woman does not walk. In the last section, when the narrator was a child, he was confused about her mode of locomotion, of how she got around. And it seemed at that point that it was plausible that she could walk, at least in some fashion. But the mention of the untrodden carpet here makes it explicit that this woman actually glides around somehow.
1: Yeah, she has some kind of hover technology going on, which is very cool.
0: There was just one more thing I wanted to say about Dr. Marsh before we move on. And this is to call attention to, again, this sense of purity or perfection that the narrator seems interested in at this point in the story. He calls Dr. Marsh's eyes a bright green without the brown tones most green eyes have. And yes, it could be the case that a lot of green eyes do have kind of brown flecks in them. But there's something about these eyes that stand out in his interest in the same way he sees the round face, and we'll see in a moment he sees perfect teeth. He is noticing something new about the world as he's aging. He, he is seeking some kind of perfection or is naturally attuned to seeing things that are more pure than the world he lives in.
1: Yeah, he's obsessed with observing people's phenotypes and making judgments, but also drawing conclusions about the world he lives in from them. And we are going to get a bit of that in our next section when Wolf takes up again the story of the girl on the bench. Some time has passed, and in that time, the narrator and this girl have met, and they've struck up a friendship, and they seem to be dating in the way that 15-year-olds do. Her name is Phaedria. This is Another amazing name that we're gonna explicate in the discussion. But the crux of this scene is that we're gonna get to listen to their fumbling conversation and Wolf is going to be able to use that to tell us about the social world of Port Mimizon. Phaedria's father is an inventor who speculates in ship cargoes, and I'll just point out here because it is going to come up in our discussion that this is also the exact plot of the merchant of Venice. He lives off the interest he collects from people who owe him money, but if those merchants ever go bankrupt, then so will he. So right now, he is able to actually live as a wealthy person, attending to every detail of Phaedria's education and also her plastic surgery. Now, the plan is that if he has the wealth for a large dowry when she becomes marriageable, he'll be able to marry her off to a good family, which will also be good for his business and his standing within the community. But if he should find himself pressed for money at that time, the plan is that he will sell the artificially beautiful Phaedria into sex slavery at a profit. The narrator comments here that his own family is ideal in either of these scenarios.
0: Yeah, there's an awful lot going on here. One of the things that you brought up, is the plastic surgery. This is brought up in passing as if it's the norm. And maybe something like this explains the difference between this girl and the monster. It explains the dichotomy here. It is expected for people of a certain class, and maybe this is the case in the brothel as well, that people are artificially enhanced to look more beautiful. This also calls into question the idea of the planetary face, because this is a 15-year-old girl getting Plastic surgery to look more ostensibly beautiful. The monster I can only gather at this point has had none of this work done, and in fact, the fact that it's called a creature or a monster, and her name, which we will discuss, is Aunt uh, Araini, is monstrous because there is such a difference in people that the narrator is in the world with that he experiences, who have had this cosmetic work done and people who do not. But we've seen also in this story that Wolf is making a real point between artificiality and superficiality and the kind of rot beneath all of it. And so I don't really have high hopes as a result for Phaedria in this story. Um, I, I kind of have high hopes for the aunt. I don't know if she comes back, but she's maybe is the best character just based on that bit of analysis
1: <laughs> <laughs> well you make some great points here that what the narrator calls the planetary face as if this is the face everyone on the planet has is in fact the artificially created face of the elite and you know this this is what he means when he says that the gypsies and their criminal tribes don't have this face uh, it's because this face this you know round not oval face is the result of surgery. It's completely artificial. And that's a great observation that for him, he grows up only around people who look like this, except for Mr. Million, and then also maybe the people that he himself is biologically related to. And so yes, what a horror to come out of your home and encounter the monstrous Aunt Urani.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's kind of my reading here. And I'd love for our listeners to dig in on that question. Another thing is brought up here in this section, which is that there is a nickname for the Maison du Chien in the kind of social network of the children. They call it the Cave
1: Canum. Glenn, I think you probably want to take an aside and explain this here. Yeah, getting to talk about Latin multiple times in one episode. I mean, this is really uh, my my favorite day, I think. So... Yes, the the cave canem. Cave in Latin would actually be pronounced cawe. This is Latin for beware the dog. You have seen this sign on your neighbor's fence. But they also simply call it the cave. And I I think that the pun works on uh, another level here, not just this cawe, cave, spelled the same but pronounced differently, but also because canem itself is the Latin accusative, C A N E M. It's the accusative or the direct object, but Canum, C-A-N-U-M, is the genitive or possessive plural. So it would actually be the cave of the dogs or perhaps the three-headed dog, if you will. And in Chicago English, right, Canum and Canum sound exactly the same. They might not sound the same in your accent, but they certainly do in mine. And so I thought this, again, this is a pun that Wolf is making that has multiple layers. Well, now that that business is over, uh, we're going to get to focus on Mr. Million, and I'm very excited about this. When the narrator gets home, he describes his plan to meet Phaedria at the park again the next day, and this is foiled by his own oversleeping following a night of experiments from his father, but also by a heavy rain. When the narrator does finally awake, Mr. Million is reading a book, and I I love this detail almost as much as I love him chuckling at the Euripides joke. The narrator now recalls what Dr. Marsh had said about Mr. Million, and so he takes a look at the almost obliterated stampings on his main cabinet, and he finds there the name of a cybernetics company on Earth, and it should say, the name is not given, he just says he finds the name, and also M. Dot million. And here's where we learn that as a child, he had taken the M dot as the abbreviation for Monsieur or Mr. And that's how we get Mr. Million. But he realizes now that M is the Roman numeral for a thousand. And so this is really just a way of saying a thousand million or a billion. Well, the narrator has other questions, I think, that are coming on top of this realization here. He asks Mr. Million what it means to be unbound versus bound, and uh, he also asks, and maybe this is really more important, whether Mr. Million is simulating his father, right? We've already noted that they have a similar appearance. Now, Mr. Million explains that the person he is simulating is at least his great-grandfather, not his father. And the process of being simulated required examining that human's brain at the cellular level with a beam of accelerated particles. Now, that process is fatal. And so, what this means is that the narrator's ancestor uploaded himself into a robot. Uh, but in doing that, his own body was destroyed.
0: Yeah, that's going to feature heavily into our conversation here at the end of the section, which we are rapidly approaching. One thing I do want to point out here is a great trick that Wolf uses that he borrows from Melville. The narrator asks if, as you said, Glenn, the unbound simulator is simulating his father. And I just want to read Mr. Million's response, because this is actually a really kind of a touching moment in the story. Mr. Million says this, No, the face in the screen... Mr. Million's face, as I had always thought of it, shook its head. Call me, call the person simulated, at least, your great-grandfather. He, I, am dead. And here we get, in like three sentences, both in the narrator's question and in Mr. Million's response, this crazy doubling of... Identity that is taking place here, but that the personality that provides Mr. Million with its movement, with its motion, is entirely subsumed by the body of Mr. Million. It is its sole identity. So there's some real tragedy there, but I also wanted to point out that that phrase, call me, followed by a name or an identity, that's taken right out of Moby Dick. Anytime you get call me instead of I am, you're, at, you're just telling the reader to pay attention to the identity questions that are wrapped up in that kind of phrase.
1: Right. And as we all know, Wolf is our Melville. Yeah, there's one more thing I think that's worth doing here in this scene with Mr. Million, which is to say that the narrator really pushes him on the questions that he has about Mr. Million's identity. And Mr. Million actually starts to explain sort of the, the technical details of being bound or unbound. There's a, a great description here that I want to read. Wolf writes, For an instant, his face dissolved into myriad sparkling dots, swirling like dust motes in a sunbeam. That's just gorgeous. But when the face returns, Mr. Million says that he does not want to talk about this. And I'm just going to quote what he says. I was told, a very long time ago, just before the operation, that my simulation, this would be capable of emotion in certain circumstances. Until today, I had always thought they lied. As soon as he says this, Mr. Million rolls out of the room. This is heartbreaking.
0: It is heartbreaking, but I think it's meant to be hopeful. I'm going to make an argument that the emotions we see in this section, or at least the pursuit of new knowledge that we get in the moment where he's reading a book, are meant to be hopeful if we are correctly approaching Wolf's illusions. So that's going to be fun.
1: Yeah, great. I'm excited about that. We've got one more thing that we have to narrate before we get into this discussion. This section ends with the narrator left to his own devices now that Mr. Million has rolled out of the room. And he is now recalling the strange dream that he'd had that night after his father experimented on him. In this dream, he is a child of three or four, He finds himself in a paved court fenced with Corinthian pillars that are so close together that he cannot squeeze through them. Each column is carved with a word, though he now remembers only one of them, uh, which is carapace, that is to say, shell. Moreover, the paving stones in this courtyard are mortuary tablets, like you find in old French churches, and each one has his name on it, but each one bears a different date of birth and death.
0: Yeah, this is a fantastic dream. Again, the three to four years old age should call to mind the holographic images he was subjected to where he was shown this three-year-old. So I think we're meant to recall these visions as well. This child who is up against inanimate objects that are far beyond their ability to impact, but at least in the narrator's mind, he wants to destroy that blockade. The pillars that are so close together that you can't squeeze through them. This, to me, feels like a a birdcage in some way. I'm just going to go with the bird imagery as far as I can in this story. (laughs) Um, But also, maybe he's imagining how Mr. Million experiences his entombment in the shell, the body of the Unbound Simulator. And maybe there's some connection there. And I think it's probably the most plausible reading, because Mr. Million is, in some way, the narrator. And these drug treatments that the narrator is given are meant to break down the barriers of identity between himself and all of his other, perhaps, clones in history. So something's going on there. I don't have too much to say about it. Glenn, I don't know if you have any thoughts about the dream before we really dig into the discussion.
1: Yeah, just one thought that may end up being of no consequence and certainly may end up not being able to be substantiated. But I got the sense here from this dream, making that connection between the three or four-year-old self in the dream and that holographic image of the three-year-old boy, that that boy, that holographic image is in fact the narrator or one of his predecessors as a boy. And one of the things that his father is testing in these initial experiments when he's having him just talk about what he's seeing is whether or not he recognizes himself out of context.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great reading as well. And I think it's going to take a little bit more of this story for us to begin to really unravel the dreams. Uh, at this point, I don't really feel like we can say anything with certainty, but they evoke a lot of what's going on. That's going to do it for
1: this episode. I'm Brennan Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. We'll be back in just a few days with a discussion of this part of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.